Hello, and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, author and playwright Mark Anthony Rossi. This show explores all forms of creativity for those searching for meaning and a place in the world. To err is human, but so is to love. Now, without further ado, here's your host. Hi folks, it's Mark Anthony Rossi here with another episode of Strength to Be Human. This is going to be a, a, a great interview uh, where we have uh, Alexander P. Garza. He's a writer and actor and an educator from, uh, looks like it's Houston, Texas. Uh, some of his credits are uh, Avail, uh, a journal of dark musings, which by the way, I really like that title. It's kind of cool. And then of course, uh, Aerial Chart. Hey, hey, that's great. Uh, uh, 13 Minor Birds. It's one of my favorites actually. Uh, a Black Poppy Review, I don't know that one, but I, I might want to check that one out, and, and you might want to too. Looks like he had uh, uh, received an award, the 2019 Dark Poetry Scholarship Award by the Horror Writers Association. I don't know if we'll have time for horror in, in, in this interview, but maybe we will. That'd be kind of neat. And I understand that he also has had some of his work commissioned by the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston and the Tintero Projects uh, for their uh, work being inspired by a Latin American exhibitor. So welcome, Alexander, to the show. I, I'm so happy to have you on board. I know scheduling is always a, a tough thing, so I'm so happy we were able to make a connection finally. Same, right back at you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, one of the, one of the things we like to do on the show is we try to minimize the host <laughs> and, and have more of the conversation uh, being 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 held up by by the by the guests, so that a lot of that time goes to them. So I always just simply inform the, you know, the writer or playwright, whoever it is on, on the other end, to you know, so take it from there. I give a little explanation maybe about some of your work, some of the projects you have out. Maybe um, like you had mentioned before, try to tie in with. When you have your own struggles and how you get through those in order to continue to work or how maybe sometimes the work helps you with your struggles right. um well uh right now i have been doing a lot of writing i am uh wrapping up more submissions um just had a poem accepted with uh starline um which is a science fiction and a speculative Poetry market. Yep, yeah, I've heard and, of them. And um, yeah, and uh, that's it for right now. I'm I'm have a very consistent writing practice. I try to write and read um, just about every day. Um, so that takes up the majority of my time right now that I set aside for writing. Um, I do have a wife and kids, so that also takes up some time, as you know. Ditto. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's see. So as far as um, exploring dark poetry or reading and writing and how that ties into our struggles and some of the hard times that we go through in life, um, and this can include anything from, you know, certain trauma or a death in the family or mental health, you know, anxiety and depression and different things. So, you know, how do we use reading and writing and these artistic endeavors to to get through these times um, and you know there's a few obvious ways that you probably have discussed before and that includes 
you know, things like um, journaling uh, and that um, and the things that fall under that include morning pages. So just writing about your day and the, you know, the who, what, where, when and how. So who you interacted with, what conversations you had, maybe you had a conflict um, and getting those things down on the page a lot of times will solve a lot of solve a lot of those anxieties. I don't know if you have, do you have an, um, do you journal a lot? Not, not in the classic way of that. I have some consistent practice in an actual book that, you know, I tuck away someplace. I, I always feel that the notes in my, on my phone, even throughout the day, they, they later on can, can form some thought or, or some piece of writing that I can use later. And to me, that's my idea of journaling, because if I don't do that, I, I feel I feel disorganized and I feel like I kind of failed throughout the day. But when I do that, I feel a lot better. So it, to me, it, that's my my version of it anyway. Same. Um, same. Some, sometimes it's it's just pulling little fragments throughout the day. I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, and then seeing what grows out of them. I, I used to, um, not, not in a really horrible way, but I, I used to take that less seriously i'm like eh, what the heck does that mean bah, 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 bah. and i found out later on it, it actually meant a, a whole lot I, I found that i i had less issues with uh where it's block i had less issues with with emotional distress and, and i had less issues of feeling like i was always behind on something just by doing a little bit of that each day made a gigantic difference and i've been doing it ever since and it, it really it really helps uh, clear up a lot of issues all at once right right and um and, you know, that includes just exploring those, you know, what happens that you didn't enjoy during the day, the negative things that you did not enjoy. Um, you know, it allows people to explore that as well. Um, or myself, it allows me to explore that. Um, and then also, you know, using those images from through, through each day um, can be a great help creatively. And it can be anything, a hat, a bird, a song. Uh, it's basically, you know, taking those little still lifes from your day, putting them on the page. And something I really like about journaling is gratitude lists. Um, and that brings great awareness to what's going on uh, right around you. So uh, you can start to be, you know, once you get through saying that you're grateful for your life and for the day, you start to find really specific things once you run out of things uh, to be grateful for. So, you know, I'm grateful for this pen, this notebook that I have in front of me, for this interview to be on this show. So, um, and I find that that is really, it really grounds me. Uh, it allows me to start getting into my body and being aware of what's around me. Yeah, I, I like that. Uh, I, um, I did a show um, last night, not this show, uh, another person's show called yeah. Off the Wagon. Hey, they they kind of have a, a, a sort of free-for-all. Um, people have a couple of drinks and talk and you know, hair down and you, know, you can even curse if you want. It's not like this show where it's a little bit more formal. But he's a, he's a literary guy. He's a writer and, a, and an editor. And um, he, was, uh, he was mentioning uh, the, the fact that um, he thought that um, – journaling was corny and then realized how important that, that it was and it became a real big part of, uh, of a lot of things that he wanted to do and also um, he was uh, mentioning 
the fact that there got to be ways during the day, even if you can't formally sit down and do anything serious on writing, that you're still doing things that you might consider creative so that you don't feel like, you know, you let the day go by and, and you haven't taken advantage of something. You know, because then people build up guilt or they build up stress and none of it's really needed. Because when you do finally get a chance to do something, I mean, then you like have all this junk on top of you. That's just not good. So he, he found his own little creative ways of doing that. And that was kind of fun to talk about. I'm considering doing like a show about journaling uh, and all the different methods uh, that people use. And, you know, it would be interesting to do. I, I said I have a very different way of doing it, but lots of people do it more formal. He, he's one of them. Right. Um, and yeah, just having that daily practice. I mean, that sounds exactly kind of uh, what happened with me and uh, and with you, where at the beginning I was it seemed like I was repeating myself with some of these things, like what happened during my day. You know, I did the exact same thing I did yesterday at work, you know, things like that. Um, but once you keep that consistent practice, eventually those benefits start to come out. Um, one of the last things I wanted to talk about is as far as journaling is concerned and how that can help, you know, clear mental blocks so you can be more creative or get through that hard time is um, self-affirmations. And this is something that I got from a book called The Artist's Way by uh, Julia Cameron. Uh, great book. Highly recommend it. Um, for all artists and writers. Uh, that's The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. It's a wonderful book, and it has tons of um, insights and tips on how to clear these blocks, become a better artist, um, and also get through any mental health issues, anxiety and depression. Um, so these self-affirmations are, you're telling yourself encouraging things, and um, at first it seems silly and corny. Um, and some of these at first are very realistic. So, you know, I am a writer. I, and, the, and you, you would write these down maybe daily. Um, I am an artist. I am a husband. And, you know, these things reassure yourself who you really are, your identity. But then you want to move on to something that's just out of reach. So instead of I'm a writer, maybe I'm a prolific writer. Um, and as you do this, you start expanding what the possibilities are of what you can do. So instead of I'm a husband, you know, I want to, I am a good husband. Instead of I'm a good employee, it's I'm a valued good employee. So you start finding um, things that you had never thought about before what the, those possibilities are and that's something that, that really has helped me clear some blocks so that i can be more creative as well all right well i haven't had no one express that sort of thing on any of these interviews before so it's really something new for the audience to hear so uh, i'm grateful for you sharing that thanks thank you um and some of these other things that I have written down are, are pretty interesting. Um, so one of the exercises that I like doing um, that I've done before is writing a letter. So writing that letter to someone, 
you know, write a letter to fill in the blank. This can be uh, someone who's passed away. It can be to a boss or an ex-boss. It can be to an ex-girlfriend or wife or husband or boyfriend. It could be anybody that has some type of emotional tie to you. And so writing out that letter and saying things that maybe you would never say in person right in front of them is uh, there's a lot of freedom that that you gain from doing that. Um, a lot is lifted off your shoulders once you say what you wanted to say or what you want to say but can't. One of the other things that I have found to be very, very helpful, and I actually got this tip from a, a mental health professional who told me about um, literature therapy, and this is also called bibliotherapy. I had no idea about this, but reading can actually be a type of you know, prescription by mental health professionals. And what she said was... Um, really insightful. She said that, you know, basically gets you unplugged. So you're not on your phone or on the internet or watching TV necessarily for a while. And it makes you more aware. And she said that it's best if you're reading a fiction book where you can, you can relate to the protagonist somehow. So whether it's the protagonist's upbringing, you know, their background, where they're from, or some type of, um, you know, emotional conflict that they're going through, um, or some big life event that you can relate to. And when you see that protagonist go through their story and, um, and succeed, then you yourself start to relate to that as well, which was really interesting. I'd never heard that before. And it's something I've been trying out. So I got, you know, a few books with protagonists that, you know, I really want to uh, relate to. I found a uh, – and and these are things that um, – it can be just about anything. And so one of the things I was trying out is reading a Batman novel because uh, I love Batman. I grew up with Batman. He's, he's a hero, you know? And so uh, I like to relate to that hero uh, type. And uh, so that's one of the things I'm trying out. And so far it seems to be very useful as a tool uh, to remove those blocks, get through hard times, and uh, and be creative. All right, I, you... I haven't heard anyone use Batman before, so I mean that's 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 yeah. pretty fantastic. I, usually, <laughs> I say to writers, please don't send me Batman stories because I have a literary <laughs> journal. It and I like Batman too, but I can't fit him in here because once I do that, I'm going to get the Superman stuff. I'm going to get Alien stuff. I won't even have a literary journal anymore. It'll just be a bunch of comics. <laughs> that works that makes sense um so as far as the literature therapy goes i'm also trying out um different types of poets that i might relate to maybe some of the struggles that they go through one of the classic poets is sylvia plath which um i was telling somebody recently there is actually a lot of dark darkness in her poetry uh, she had a lot of struggles that she dealt with as far as mental health and other traumas. Yep. Um, so, and some of those things come out as far as the exercises I was talking about. One of the exercises that I came across that is kind of on the dark side 
that can help you get through tough times is writing and and you see this a lot in poetry writing out what your death might be like and what the funeral might be like and you can do this with anybody that you know um and i've done it with myself quite a bit and you see it a lot in these poets for example in sylvia plath's poem lady lazarus she says dying is an art like everything else I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like hell. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say, I have a call. And so I've, um, I've written poems like this as far as, uh, you know, experiencing passing away. And it is, it's actually a lot of fun and it feels very free. Um, and it can kind of, it gets you into that mode of thinking of actually experiencing these things so that when they do come up in life, it's not a complete shock to your mind and to your body. You've already kind of written this out and seen kind of how it might play out, um, which is another interesting tool that I did not know about uh, before. Wow. Wow. I like I like that though. I haven't really heard too many people do something like that. Uh, I I saw a poem along those lines, but um, I was I was thinking that they were more serious about it than it was an exercise. But uh, <laughs> I I can imagine on how uh, that could help bring out certain things that maybe wasn't apparent before. So maybe in many ways it's a way to sort of loosen up your you know your, your psychological uptightness in in order to uh, you know maybe. Have have a freer a setting in in your in your mind, so I, I can see how it, it could be it could be useful, especially if you could retain some of that later on in an artistic way. Exactly. Um, so one of the things I talked to you about is exploring this this these dark sides in order to get through these tough times. And at first, it it sounds like, you know, do I need to start reading horror books and watch horror movies? No, no, you do not. There is quite a bit of darkness in these poems, uh, you know, classical, modern. And uh, there's actually a lot of local poets here in Houston that explore these issues. Um, as you know, or as you might know, there is a huge um, health market here in Houston. There are some of the best hospitals in the country. Um, and so it's interesting that a lot of the poetry actually starts to reflect that a little bit um, and so there are a lot of workshops and poetry that comes out of Houston that is health related um, and dealing with these tough times so so no we do not need to look at extreme horror books or horror movies in order to use these dark elements in order to get through these tough times um, so I read some this article a while back, and I just found it again um, so I could talk about it today. And it's a Vice article uh, by Abby Moss from the UK. And it is about how this these dark stories or uh, poetry or horror can actually help treat anxiety disorders um, that may be due from whatever life events are going on in each person. So in the 
in the article, she interviews uh, Dr. Steph Hovey, and you know he says, or she says directly, uh, because you're encountered, because you've encountered these feelings of nervousness and fear before, but know that nothing bad actually happened, you may be more equipped to deal with these feelings in the future. Um, which was also interesting because I grew up liking certain horror stories and or dark stories and i uh didn't know why i liked them really and i um one day i did come up with this thought that maybe it's helping me deal with anxiety uh and once i came across this article it kind of confirmed that um, which was really interesting and that alone um helped remove a lot of blocks that i was having due to life events and different things that were going on in my life Well, I definitely, I definitely uh, can uh, appreciate and 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 feel a real connection to a lot of what you're saying. I, I wrote a, a book uh, called uh, "Writing Writing Therapy," and and I and I teach that a, a great deal to to veterans to try to use writing as a as a form of therapy for them to deal with post stress. Uh, and they're they're the ones that um that have issues uh, to reconnect back into society, but these are not people that have issues so pronounced that they need to take medication. So they're people that have a more moderate form of it, and and this is a good way for them to to deal with it and control with it and, and, and move on with their lives rather than they continue to have to struggle with it. And and writing is a big a big element for that because it it allows a person to uh, ultimately uh, both confess and and deal with some of the issues that's holding them back. Definitely. Um, so. What are some of the exercises that you've uh, that you've tried out with uh, in your book or with veterans or with uh, with anybody? Well, I I tried to use my own writing first of all because um, I don't want to spend all this time trying to get somebody else writing and getting permission and doing this and doing that and then you know they change their mind and kind of messes up what you're trying to do. So I just sort of picked out some of my own works which I, I try to use for therapeutic purposes. But one of the things that I had noticed as I went along with this is that, that to take a, a Disney approach to, um, well, if you're dealing with darkness, let's just, hold, let's just hang out on the light a lot and it's all going to work out. It, it, it's simply moronic and, and doesn't really work. Um, but if you take Nishi seriously, as I do, and, and he's telling you, and, it, and he's a, this is an atheist who's saying this, so he uh, has a, a deeper understanding of the of the psyche. But when he's telling you that the more that you dwell in the darkness, you have to also be prepared that it's going to start peering into you as you're trying to stare into it. You have to realize, too, that if you're there, you're there to try to find as much as a reason, as much as you're trying to find some strength to be able to to face it because the longer you do that the more that you can become uh, courageous and confident and then it starts to dissolve and it starts to become less of an impact on your life but if you don't face it and if you don't learn to deal with it and understand that it's there that it might go away or might never go away well then you're going to always have this this struggle where you feel it's beside you you know trying to alter your life or trying to sabotage your happiness or, or, or try to just ruin whatever love and joy you're trying to produce in your life. So 
And Nishi's right, though. The longer you're there, the, the more damaged sometimes it can be. So it's sort of like a like a, a, a like a psychological scuba, you know, a, a venture that you understand that yeah, I can be down here, but I only got like 45 minutes before I run out of air and then I'm going to die. So it's sort of like that. You can't be there long. You have to be long enough there to try to grab, grapple whatever it, what it is and, and, and deal with it as, as much as you can and, and then sort of get out and, and move on. So that's pretty much what we did. We found writing pieces that helped us, uh, some of the mine, some of them sometimes just from the class themselves, with, which they produced, that, that helped almost like an archaeologist, help dig out some things that allow us to put together a design of, of what is holding us back. And then in some cases, these are military people. And, and in some cases, you know, they had to do things in the, in the course of their, um, their career or even in the course of an event or two that they never dealt with at the moment and thought they would deal with later on. And then it just grabs you. I mean, you, you go into the you know, you go into the forest or a jungle on a, on a mission, and you, you wind up having to open fire on somebody, and and you might find out that um, you had every legal and ethical and even more right to do so for for purposes of self defense or purposes that didn't declare yourself, and you have men that you have to protect. But you know, you get there, you see people dead, and you know you did that, and mm -hmm. then you you have a you have a snack bar. You're looking at your compass trying to get back to your base and you don't deal with that 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 regardless of how right that might have act might have been it doesn't mean that it's suddenly an okay thing as a human being to kill another thing and that you have to still deal with that and you have to deal with that on a psychological uh sometimes even a spiritual basis in order for you to start feeling right about what happened not right that ha ha i just killed somebody but right that you're not carrying that for the next 40 years like it's some evil ghost that's going to remind you that you're a jerk. And some men just never dealt with that. They went back to the base. They went back to their career. They went back years before they even dealt with that. And when they get out later on and they wind up finding out something in their life that presses them, whether it's a, a relationship gone sour or a job didn't work out or something that was really, really causing them pain, that comes out right out of the blue something you thought was buried not buried and now you have to deal with it in, in, in a far more aggressive fashion almost like a cancer that you didn't deal with before and and it becomes a, a real hardship and, and and with some people if they don't deal with it as soon as they find it's a problem they graduate to drugs and alcohol divorce suicide sometimes hurting other people and, and then they want to be in that stereotype, of, you know, uh, veteran that are out there that he can't be controlled, he can't be hired, he can't be reasoned with, you know. It's a Hollywood thing where you, they're all monsters with, you know, demons in them or something. Uh, so uh, that's how we, we did it, to try to fast track somebody learning what's holding them back, confess whatever they felt, and, and try to sort of like chip in that away and, and let it dissipate. That becomes... Uh, I, I, an act of uh, of courage and it also becomes a way for them to to be able to stand up and, and move forward it's not a magic marker it doesn't erase everything you, you can't kill somebody and it goes away but right. you can you can mitigate some of the damage that it does to you and, and you can also make some peace with it and maybe even with uh, God if you believe that that right. um, what you had to do, you felt you had no choice, but it doesn't mean that you're still not having responsibility. And it doesn't mean that you don't have accountability for that. It doesn't mean that maybe later on in life you, you might have to um, 
be more sensitive or, or be more careful uh, about right. something that maybe uh, whenever you feel it's possible that violence isn't the first thing you deploy in order to reason, reason with a situation. That sort of thing. It's this way you're not carrying that burden or you're not increasing that burden. Right. And like you were saying, then once that person with any with that trauma starts to explore those things later on, it's interesting what you were saying about Nishi, how it, it really needs to be constructive. If, if You're right. If they stay there too long, uh, it can it can be damaging again if they're re-experiencing that over and over. That's just as equally damaging as experiencing it. So yeah, you increase a person's fear instead of increasing the fact that you're trying to make them stronger and courageous to to face it. You, you can make him even more frightened, <laughs> so that yes. it, it can have a, a real a real a damaging effect. And 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 some people feel that that's that's a spiritual element in it too. And everybody has a different thought frame on that because not everybody is a religious believer. Obviously, Nietzsche was not. But regardless of he wasn't not or not, if you read a lot of his interesting writings and philosophy, I always felt it bordered on spirituality, which I thought was so uninteresting that this man is claiming there's no God. And oftentimes his writings seem to me to be very religious at times. <laughs> yeah, um, Absolutely. And uh, that spirituality is, you, you can't really uh, cut that away from what's going on with your body and your mind. Um, it's necessary in order to bring that courage out in order to get through these times. Um, so one of those things, you know, how, how do we be more constructive um, instead of just, you know, wallowing? in these in this darkness um so as far as writing is concerned one of the things i was thinking about as far as craft and how this can tie into these things is um including those those specific images um what something looked like or someone looked like or what they said or how it sounded and then using the five senses of course um sight sound smell taste uh, touch and and using these in your writing because a lot of times you don't necessarily need to um, re-experience that specific event perhaps it's the things surrounding that event that can help you get through it as well one of the um, poets that I wanted to mention um, a couple a few of them out of Houston uh, that are just fantastic and I've worked with them um, maybe in, I took one of their workshops. Uh, Lupe Mendez, that's in charge of Tintero projects, is the one who set up um, the event that we had at the Museum of Fine Arts. And and in these, they will talk about uh, either death or something that they've gone through. Um, one of the poems that Lupe Mendez wrote in his book, Why I'm why I Am Like Tequila and the um, same titled poem, uh, he talks about, um, he has a lot of imagery in this poem and he says some things that might seem, uh, you know, on the dark side. He says, let me bleed slowly every seven years. I am birthed, dissected, cannibalized. 
and and he talks about uh, black wreaths and he has these other um, images and you'll see if, if you know if you read this book by him that most of the most of his poems are not on the dark side so this seems to be you know one of the ways that he um, experiences life and gets through trying times uh, this is a great poem why I am like tequila and book uh, if you happen to to um, be interested in checking it out um, his wife his wife's name is Jasmine Mendez who is also a fantastic poet and writer um, her book I'm sorry the previous book um, that I was just talking about why I am like tequila is published by Willow Books this year and his wife Jasmine um, Jasmine Mendez uh, just published her book last year through Arte Publico Press, which is a um, press here out of Houston. And something that and she uh, deals with this um, uh, skin disorder that she talks a lot about in her book, and it is it is very hard. Uh, and I, I wish I remember the name of the skin disorder, but um, it's been very hard for her and they just had a baby and they're dealing with multiple medical issues as well as uh, keeping up with their writing and setting up these huge events. Um, so one of the things that she mentions that we were talking about earlier in her book is she says, you know, death was inevitable, but what mattered most was the journey. Um, and that's something that I've tried to live by as far as uh, experiencing each day with with that gratitude, um, because in my mind, anyway, the journey is what matters the most uh, instead of that final result. I, I certainly uh, agree with that because, you know, the journey is, is ultimately the, the metaphor for just, you know, life living. Right. Um, one of the other poet, the, the last poet I wanted to talk about out of Houston um, I just took a workshop with her, which was fantastic. Her name is Analicia Sotelo, and she just published her book through Milkweed Editions um, called Virgin. And she talks about different thing, different memories of when she was young um, or more recent uh, events. And she talks about trauma in her poem, Trauma with Damp Stairwell. And she mentions in her workshop, she mentioned using place places um, and and comparing two places within the poem and what it's like in one place versus the other. So she talks about uh, her first line or opening line of the poem is there's no winter here in Texas, which is loaded with tons of, uh, you know, metaphors and uh, and symbolism there. Um, winter obviously can ties into the seasons of life, um, you know, dark times. And uh, where she's at here in Texas is where she grew up. So she says, you know, uh, when I was a girl, it was breath to me. And she goes on to talk about how um, uh, she says, in the dreams I've had of him, it is raining. So uh, though she's not completely direct in this poem that i mean that's the beauty of poetry also is um kind of basking in that language of what you're trying to communicate um, really and the last 
Yeah, and that last line she has here in this poem is is beautiful. She says, he was the rain. He would come and go. He was there for everyone. And what we know from this title is that it's some type of, it, there's some type of trauma that, that occurred here, and perhaps when she was a young girl. Um, and it's just interesting to see, um, you know, this, these types of exercises being applied with these professional writers, it, it kind of goes to show that this is not all just talk or psychological mumbo jumbo. These are things that actually can be applied in our lives. Yeah, and I, and I definitely agree. And I, I definitely do think that sometimes even people in the writing world will, will dismiss um the, the mental health issues that even they might have themselves, even if they're not classically a person that's struggling with mental illness, they dismiss all this as, you know, just being a, a, a crutch or, or just being an excuse while they have to also live the same life that every one of us live. So if we're, we're doing, whether it's journaling or trying to understand better ourselves or make a deeper connection with things, what are you doing then that that's that's having that impact because if you're not doing anything other than dismissing what we're doing not only is that not constructive you're not being realistic then right and um and you know not everybody needs all of these exercises you know some people as far as uh morning pages are concerned you know writing about your day some people get great benefit out of talking about their day, you know, as opposed to writing it down, which is, you know, there, these tools can be used uh, in different ways. Yeah, they can be. It's, 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 it's no, it's no different than, you know, in, in my, uh, my opinion on, on, on using, uh, you know, an, an aspirin, uh, for a, a body ache, or it can be for a headache, or it can even be for a, a toothache. You can use it for different things. It, it doesn't have to just be for one thing. So mm -hmm. why not multitask various exercises or even various theories out there to see if they have some application in your life? You, you might find that there's a part of it that, that could be useful. Right, right. And... Uh... And, you know, writing is not the only form that uh, that can manifest from these from these skills that we learn in order to deal with these uh, hard times. Um, you know, there's art. I love painting and uh, I like to use words on my paintings as well, I like painting trees and uh, little little self affirmations and other quotes that I like to put on them. And it. And that's just one example. Some people might get these things through painting or music. Um, I also, I love playing guitar and singing and uh, writing songs. So that's something else that um, a lot of people get, not only get great joy out of and other people can relate to, uh, but also uh, work through some of the trauma that they might have dealt with. I think trauma in many ways is still a, a, an unspoken language out there for lots of people in general and, and particularly for writers because they they sometimes they perceive it as just the Hollywood version of, you know, you got in an accident or you've been raped or you got shot in a war or, 
you know, um, somebody uh, somebody uh, robbed you and beat you up, where oftentimes trauma cannot be any of those things. It could just be the, you know, the day-to-day -day, uh, 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 of a week that, that went bad, or uh, it could be, uh, you know, a hiccup in a relationship, or, or it could be a, a, a child's illness that it wind up working out, but it still left you with some, some damage. So sometimes trauma doesn't really have the full definition or even the full respect that it deserves. Right. Absolutely true. Um, and I couldn't agree more about the day-to-day -day things that can be a form of trauma. Um, and these things slowly uh, add up over time. And some people don't even realize it until it's, well, too late and they start to suffer from various physical or mental uh, you know, maladies or uh, various issues. Well, I, they definitely, they definitely do. I learned it more in, later in my life because I'm one of those people that that I uh, got married and had children much later in their life. So I mean, I'm I'm a guy in a situation that I go to the store with my children and people say, "You got really handsome grandkids." I'm like, "They're my children. What do you mean grandkids?" <laughs> so uh, that's because I, I I sometimes I forget because it's my reality that this is normal for me. But for other people, I mean, I'm at the age of, of where they're about to have grandkids or they have grandkids already. And my kids are still in elementary school. So it's, yeah. it's a different sort of uh, experience uh, for me and, and for, of course, for others, too, to, to see something that's a little bit less than traditional. But in the end, I mean, I'm, I'm still dealing with the same stuff. I mean, I don't care how much older you are and how much more educated you are. And I've seen the world many times and I've been in war and I've been in the military. Um, you have a kid sick and there's nothing nothing worse in terms of how you feel and, and helplessness and sitting there hoping everything's going to be okay. I mean, it's, yes. it's a horrifying feeling. And no matter how old or how young you are, it, 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 you don't really tackle it the same way. But it has the same, I feel, corrosive effect. Yes, definitely. Um, there is a study. Well, there's there's been multiple studies. Uh, uh there's a study in 2009 that was released by, um, let's see. Well, the article discusses how uh, parents, um, just by having kids alone, can increase depression and anxiety. And because, I guess we don't really think about it, but if you think about from the time of... Uh, gestation and having and being pregnant through all of that all the way through a birth and then if there's complications that can be even more stressful you know and then how those things affect your job and other parts of your life um that alone just the beginning of having kids can be traumatic not only for um the the dad but especially for for the mom yeah, I, I wrote a I wrote a poem when it, it really uh, uh, hit me that I, I'm not a, I'm not a woman and the the pregnancy of of my wife with both children was uh, difficult and 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 oftentimes it altered her her health for a while. God knows it alters the body, and I can understand more when I was an older person because you you don't you don't laugh it off as easy that um 
it's a traumatic effect just to have a child. As much as it's a blessing, it's also a very rough deal, especially when you you got somebody that had perfect health before. You, you're, you're now pregnant, and then suddenly you're, you're dealing with uh, diabetes. Even if it's a temporary thing, it, it's rough. You're dealing with hypertension that can cause you to have a stroke even after you have the child. So, I mean, you're actually dealing with a person now that you have impregnated, and I don't mean that in a casual way. I mean that in a loving way, but still... You now have the responsibility to do whatever you can for that person because at times their life could be in danger just by trying to bring another life in the world. Absolutely. And um, my wife is pregnant right now with our third child. Oh, wow. Great. Congratulations. We're, we're too old for anything else now. We're done. We really are. We're just <laughs> too old, okay? Uh, still coming to terms with that, you know, with, with that trauma. But uh, – but my wife is doing pretty well, but she's same with, with these three pregnancies. She's dealt with diabetes each time. So in the middle of the night, she's she has to take insulin sometimes. And, and that's one of the things that I'll uh, I'll get up with her in order to, to help her out. If her blood sugar is too low, I mean, you know, yeah. it can be quite, quite dangerous. So um, and sometimes it's hard for her to get up in the middle of the night, of course. So. Uh, yeah, essentially, you you really are just you're caretaking at that point, um, helping with with any of those things that your wife is experiencing, um, and then vice versa. If, if she starts to notice maybe these things are stressing me out, she starts to 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 help me as well, you know. And um, when it comes down to it. You're you're the only one that can, can pull yourself out of this in order to continue taking care of your loved one, um, having that perseverance and courage um, and love can get you through those times. And can I know we had a couple of scary times. I mean, at, at one point uh, um, they said, "Yeah, we 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 got to deliver the baby now." It was about like four weeks early. And, and and I'm like I'm totally forward. I mean, let's get going here. I'm I'm all right with it. And they're like, you know, your, your wife's blood pressure is 220. I'm like, um, yeah, um, she's about to have a stroke. Can you hurry up and get this going over here? Stop talking <laughs> to me about it. Let's just start doing something. I I understand wow. understand that she's practically like in a coma over here. Let's 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 definitely move. And um, I remember the nurse telling me. Uh, I guess it was her way to console me about the situation about uh well it's just so great that a man gets involved in all this i'm like and i was being flippant but i was also sort of like just upset and i'm like well i'm responsible for this so of course i'm going to be here and my wife's on the table starts laughing about you're responsible for this that's hilarious i'm like i'm glad you can joke <laughs> and you're half you're half drugged out and you're laughing over there but um we we were um we were fortunate to um have the second child and then just understand that we're older people and it's actually physically uh, becomes more physically dangerous to have children when you're older than when you're younger. So, you know, we, right. we, we just, we simply made the resolution that, you know, we were going to have the two and that was going to be it because, you know, each time her health became much more of a factor and uh, no matter how much more you want to have a bigger family or in our case, we'd love to have had a daughter because we only had two sons you know, um, you, you don't want to throw away, um, you know, somebody's life. You know, if you really want a daughter, you can always adopt, I guess. You know, but um, sometimes that's what you have to do and, and just be uh, happy and grateful. But it, it's 
even in the 21st century, uh, you know, childbirth and all the things that go with it are, are, are not as routine as people say they are. I mean, there's all kinds of complications, all kinds of issues, and, and sometimes it remains. My wife did not get back to the health that she used to have for over two years after she had the second child. It took that long to get the blood pressure, uh, the diabetes back to normal, or her health and her weight and all the exercise and all the stuff. I mean, it's just an enormous trek back. You know, so yes. um, I would never want her to go back through that again, regardless of whatever my feelings are about having a larger family. Sometimes you just have to move on and be happy right. and be happy. And and I did, and, and I'm happy. I don't really have any, any regrets. I mean, I'm just glad I still have a wife, you know? Definitely. And it's amazing how we're, you know, there, there are certain points where we just have to, we have to um, be strong and we have to move on. Um in these situations, I was uh, thinking about, you know, what you said earlier about going into exploring these these dark sides and, and trauma in our lives, and how if you get if you stay too long, it can start to have a negative effect instead of that constructive uh, effect on your life, and um, how it it could be so in that situation, you know, with with your wife. It could be so easy for somebody to just give up, uh, run away from all of that, you know, and it's at a certain point you have to decide, you know, am I going to stay strong and and have that courage and share that with my loved one or am I going to give up? Is this too much? And uh, it's amazing. It's just amazing to me to see people that um have more strength than maybe we can imagine. People are actually a lot more resilient than they've been given credit for. But in that resiliency, it won't last unless they, they feel that when they falter, there's someone going to be there to try to help soften that, that fall. And that's why oftentimes any kind of therapy, particularly you know writing therapy, you, know, you, you you want to be somebody's sponsor, so to speak. You want them to be able to call you in whatever time they have to call you sometimes to get through things until they have to do less and less of that as they feel their way around back into a, a new life. If you can do that and, and structure something that way, you find people come out of that and they become uh, they become stronger and they become back to the to the people that they wanted to be with the understanding that you know their experience did change them and that's not going to change back. But why think that because you're changed that somehow that it doesn't mean you can't go forward you can you just go forward as, as a changed individual sometimes the changes for people they wind up being more positive than they realized and they wind up being stronger than they ever thought and, and it makes them uh, not only more mature but it makes them more more productive in their life so they can see and understand things a little deeper than than the average person can but um i i don't like to be super sensitive so i I, I often go into these therapy sessions reminding people that if you're not going to be straight with yourself and, 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 and with us and you're not going to try to tackle this, you're going to wind up going to somebody that's going to give you a bunch of medication. It's just going to mask the symptoms. You're never really going to solve anything. And you're obviously going to either get addicted to that stuff or, or something else. And, and, and you're going to wind up damaging your life further because you're not really tackling what you should be tackling you're just covering it up for a little while. And everyone knows anything about covering up anything. I don't care if it's from politics to something medical. 
it doesn't stay long before it just gets worse. Definitely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And whether somebody is getting that, that you know, professional uh, help, like through therapy, um, or, or perhaps they're getting this, you know, talk therapy through family members that they speak to, um, whatever the case may be, I think it's a highly undervalued um, tool at our disposal that that's not it's just not used enough. It's because it's not it's not Hollywood, Alex. It's not sexy. It's not mm-hmm. it's not uh, the person's on the couch telling you about aliens touching their body 14 years ago, and you know, and, and then they they go into regression therapy and they they meet you know Abraham Lincoln and all this other nonsense. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the most basic things in, in life are pretty simple. It, 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 it's like weight control. I mean, I tell people all the time in my personal life, even on the show, you could fall for these fads and all this other, you know, technical nonsense, or you could simply do what you already know that's worked for the last 2,000 years. Eat better and exercise. Over the time, you're going to lose weight. You don't have to do too many dramatic things. You don't need operations and, and, and water pills and and, and, and doing something right. doing something from Tibet. I mean, sometimes you just have to do the basic things. You got this way because you ate too much and didn't exercise. Guess what? The reverse actually works. For you'll find out like 90% of the people, it actually works. Only the right. real extreme horrible examples of somebody on the verge of death needs an operation for their stomach. Everybody else, they just need to get out on the road a little bit and, you know, put down the Twinkies. I mean, and, and, and the things will get better. So it's no different with therapy. Some of the most basic things we've been told throughout worlds and throughout all of our cultures about how confession is good for the soul. Well, guess what, folks? It's not a stupid cliche. That happens to be a vital truth to things that I deal with and I help others to deal with. For them getting that junk out of their system because it's poison, automatically they already see and, and start feeling better and automatically they've already start figuring out ways that they can tackle it and then they can deal with it and then they can move forward. Just the confession alone is is really the key. And yes, you, it's hard to tell somebody with a PhD, um, I'm sorry, but this psychoactive medication you're giving them, that's not really compelling confession. It's just making them just become more of a denier. What the hell is that really doing? That makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting because uh, a person d- sometimes doesn't realize what it is exactly that they need to work through or confess. Um, I know that it, it took a long time for my wife to to remember her trauma at all that she experienced when she was younger. Um, that's something else that's, that's pretty interesting that I'm finding. And perhaps you've experienced this with uh, veterans is that sometimes the memories can be repressed and they won't remember certain things until years later. Yeah. They've kept them down so much and they spent so much time denying that. Yeah. It's, it's really the root of all their issues. Sometimes our sessions can't help with that and people need some hypnotherapy and I'm all right with that. And the reason why I'm all right with that is because it's not some fad and it's not some cute little Hollywood trick. It actually is a good thing to help bring those things out so they could see them. And that is in its own form of confession. And then they could deal with stuff because they've taken it from its buried spot out so they now can deal with it. It works and it's helped a lot of people to, to recover the memory. And then from there, 
you know, deal with it with the damage. So it, it definitely works, and sometimes it's necessary. But again, hypnotherapy, you don't need medication, and you don't need 10,000 visits. You just need enough to be able to, to tackle it. And, it, and it does work, and some people need it. Not all, but some people do need it, and it works. Definitely. And I wanted to ask you, I was curious, uh, and perhaps you've talked about this on your show. Um, what is your, uh, where, what, what's your military background and where did you serve and when did you serve? I, I did not serve. My, uh, my father was in the army around the time of Vietnam, but he was stationed in Germany, uh, fortunately. So he did not have to see, um, any, uh, direct, war or battle i uh, i was in the air force uh, from 84 to 90 so i was in intelligence so i served in california then i went to germany i, I did a, a number of, uh, of of assignments in asia and then i wind up in in, in panama right in the middle of a war <laughs> um and then as far as your own experience in the military and and applying some of these different practices what has that been like well, I, I found like a, a, a number of, of veterans that I was dealing with uh, that mm -hmm. um, I, I kept certain certain experiences they had and, and, and just blew it off as, um, you know, I'm a tough Italian guy from New Jersey. I can handle this crap and, and put it to the side. And then later on when my father was dying, I, I, I realized that, you know, I, I put too much stuff to the side that became a, a problem for me. Fortunately... You know, through my own writing therapy and, and just for, just for talking with some some folks in in, in the VA, you know, I was mm -hmm. able to, to 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 gain a hold of it and and not allow it to affect my life. So I didn't have to go to alcohol and drugs and never had an issue with any of those things. But that was only because I, I recognized early that I had a problem and I needed to tackle it before it became worse. And it's pretty much the philosophy I have when I when I talk to the veterans. It's about listen, you have a problem. It will get worse if we don't try to figure out how to tackle it now. That's the only way, a very practical way of going about things. Sometimes, uh, too many times in, in these, these therapy sessions on, 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 on other theories on how to deal with this, they spend too much time prescribing or holding a hand or, or using what I feel useless political language that doesn't do anything for anybody. You have to talk straight to people about something. I mean, if they're holding something back, it's probably what's hurting them in the beginning, and they, they need to get that out, no matter how, how dumb it is. So I, I've heard a lot of unusual stuff. I've heard people that um, they repressed the fact that they were gay through their entire service, and, and that actually harmed them because, in many ways, they led like three and four different lives because of trying to uh, always avoid detection. Uh, wow. I served, Alex, when you coming out and gay meant you go to jail. It was none like this. Somebody makes fun of you, and that's the end of the story. No, you go to jail. <laughs> yeah, that's how because it, it was against the law in, in the military service. It's none of this. Don't ask, don't tell, or now everybody can be gay and everybody has fun <laughs> and whatever. I served. It was it was not a joke. So I don't try to be very judgmental to people who hid that. I don't because mm -hmm. I can understand. Even though I'm not gay, it's not hard to understand how how damaging that is and how crappy exactly. how crappy that that rule was. But again, they can't live that way for forever. And even, and this is what I, I, I learned later on, uh, even when they came out of the closet of being gay, 
it didn't mitigate the damage of all the stuff they were hiding for that long because they still had that damage inside them. They still had to deal with that. So it wasn't just like, all right, I'm gay now and I'm cool. I don't have to worry about nothing anymore. No, you have to worry about maybe 15 years or 20 years of lying to everybody under the sun. And that has to have an effect on a person because it does. Right, right. And it that is has to do with, you know, your identity and, and uh, it's across the board, um, whether you're gay or or anywhere on that uh, sexuality spectrum. Um, I think that sometimes we don't want to subconsciously don't want to recognize something about our identity um, that can end up being quite traumatizing for the person. Yeah, I've, like I've, I've come across a lot of interesting things that uh, it, it took me sometimes by surprise. I, I had one I had one guy. Um, he was in a, a, a military conflict and he wind up being towards the back of things. So nobody was shooting at him and he wasn't in, in any danger. And he used the vehicle later on when uh, when he had found out that, you know, his unit was having a problem to go out there and, and help rescue them. And you would think that a person like that would be uh, so um, so relieved and so happy that he, he got to do something useful to save somebody's life. And it wasn't his fault that he was in the back. That's what the orders that he was following. Yet he carried the guilt of that sort of thing for years afterwards, feeling that he was a coward and that he should have fought more about his officers not letting him go and his unit he's left down, all this stuff, even though he did his job as he was ordered and he also did his job to save people but in between all of that he felt like a, a complete loser and by feeling that way you know it, it, it harmed him and, and, and years years afterwards it harmed him because that's what he perceived and that's what he felt ultimately that's what he started believing even though the facts indicate something completely different yes yeah and uh Imagine being and imagine no, I, being a hero, but you feel like you're a coward. I mean, it's it's incredible. Right. That's that's actually, you know, um, I know we're nearing the end of our interview, but uh, one of the the last uh, poem that I had actually talks about that a little bit, and it's by Sharon Olds uh, from 1980, University of Pittsburgh Press. I'm actually familiar yeah. with her because I'm that old. <laughs> <laughs> And so in this poem, The Language of the Brag, in her um, book, Satan Says, uh, she talks about a little bit about courage. And though she is, you know, for some people, she is a hero. She says, I have wanted some epic use for my excellent body, some heroism, some American achievement beyond the ordinary for my extraordinary self. She says, I have wanted courage. I've thought about fire and the crossing of waterfalls and I have dragged around my belly big with cowardice and safety and uh, she goes on to finish the poem I'm putting my proud American boast right here with the others and this was interesting to me because though her book is called you know has the word Satan in it and she has a she uses a lot of cursing and a lot of darkness in her poetry you know, she's still famous and has won multiple awards that and none of it has to do with, you know, the genre of horror. Um, but it does have to do with having that courage to come out and uh, 
say the things that that you couldn't say before. And, and I and I completely agree that there's something um, uh, not only liberating about it. That there's something that says, you know, to the world uh, that you have arrived when you can finally speak the things that you've been holding back on for who knows how long. Right. Right. And uh, it's easy to forget that you know we're each uh, we each have that courage to be some type of hero um, in whatever way that might be. Well, it's definitely something I try to encourage on the show to to try to push people. And yeah, I, I literally use those words, push people to um, to get out of their shell, to get out of the house, to get away in, in many ways uh, and put distance from a family who is not supportive or maybe even destructive towards the things that you want to do and who you want to become and how creative you want to be. Because if if you don't do that to help people. Some people will make it on their own and others, they, they're going to fall apart. They might walk away from writing. Some of them might just walk away from living because they never thought that there was anybody in their corner. So some of the show is about trying to have a lifeline to some, some folks like that to give them a, just a moment to reconsider that um, they are more than they thought. Definitely. Mm. Let's see. And I know we're we're near the end now. Did you have any other questions, specific questions that you wanted to ask? Well, yeah, actually, I I, I did, and not to put too much of a, of a fine point on it, but um, mm-hmm. I'm looking at your last name and looking where you're from, some, some Texas. So I'm thinking that you're you're some sort of a Hispanic person, and I'm wondering if a lot of that culture. Does it help inform your writing? Are you using that in your writing? Or are you just one of those folks that just want to do something else and that that's not as important? So I'm wondering about that because when I read your writing, I don't always feel that's the case. Where I've had other Hispanic writers and it's just right out there and, and, and they use that. Others don't. Well, sometimes I do. Um, it's really been or it's really only come out of becoming an adult where – as a, as a child, I, I didn't really know that I was uh, Mexican-American. And yes, the uh, background is Mexican-American. I, on my mom's side, I have a lot of family that lives in Mexico. My dad is, is part, um, you know, he's also Mexican-American. He was born here in Texas. And uh, so a lot of those, so in my writing, a lot of the talk about race or or cultural background is seems feels political um and i try not to get overly political sometimes um i i enjoy much more focusing on the the uh more minute uh aspects of life uh, i know the you know the poem that was published with aerial chart uh you know is about a wasp and uh it's one of the smallest things, and it's something that's universal. It doesn't necessarily pertain to Mexican-American culture. And so, you know, in addition to that, in, with my upbringing here in Texas, I wasn't really exposed to a lot of Hispanic writers growing up. Um, and so I think that has to do with it as well. And now here in Houston, there's a huge Hispanic population. So at a lot of poetry readings and workshops, you you do now come across 
uh, Hispanic writers and uh, leaders of organizations, uh, literary organizations, and some of their writing can be very political. And it, it's nice to hear that perspective, uh, whether, you know, no matter what your cultural background is, um, uh, it's not something that everybody has been exposed to. And it's not something, even as a Mexican-American, that you could even know that it's around unless you're actually in front of it. Um, like I said, growing up, I, I didn't even know that I was any different until some, you know, one of my uh, peers pointed it out. And, uh, so you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's not something that's been a huge focus for me. Um, Though I will say being around the literary, the Hispanic literary community here in Houston, um, I do now have a few poems that that are a little bit more political. It's not something that I am um, pursuing, though, let's say. I got you. And I, and I, and I appreciate the answer. It, it, it's always with folks sometimes a, a nuanced answer because not everybody is is going to follow the path that somebody else thinks they're supposed to follow. And certainly my question is not about that because I don't believe that, you know, um, if you have a Hispanic name or you live in an area that has a lot of Hispanics, that somehow you're supposed to be doing everything that everybody else is doing. You have to do what's going to be better for you. And, 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 and then maybe I'll explore that later on. But I find that sometimes writers find more of a cultural uh, awakening when they get older rather than when they're younger. That's just my general experience. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, and as I got older, the the, I mean, as you've as we've talked about before, the writing practice has been consistent. And uh, whereas before, it definitely was not <laughs> consistent, very sporadic. Um, so, uh, well, that, as far as sorry, no, that that just that takes time in in its own self to figure out what's going to be. You know, good for you in terms of uh, organization and, and discipline. And then, you know, like I had a show on the rituals of writing, the various rituals you might come up with yourself. That helps a, a person you know, stay stay focused on that. Yeah, the, most definitely. Um, and as far as Mexican-American culture is concerned with, with the way that it's impacted me, um, uh, though sometimes if I'm talking about myself in, in, a, in a work, sometimes those things will be reflected. I've, I've written a little bit about, you know, six months that I lived in Mexico. Um, uh, but again, most of the things that I focus on have to do with um, the minute. And I had to actually make that decision um and I think I did that maybe in the last year or two where I knew that a lot of the Hispanic writers were very political in their work. And that seemed to be the marketable way to go um, for Hispanic writers. And and after thinking about it for, for a while, for a good while, and actually trying out some, some poetry, you know, I tried writing some political poetry, I'm you know, over time, I've started to realize it's not my uh, strong suit necessarily. It doesn't come, it doesn't always come from a natural place. I mean, and it makes and it makes sense too, because uh, in, in the end, 
when something doesn't come from a, a, a natural place, it, it always will seem or, or, or sound forced. And you never want to do that as a writer. You want to try to feel that whatever you're doing is is authentic and it comes from a place that you want it to be from and not someplace else because you're making somebody else happy. So you have to do what's really best for you sometimes more than what's best for the for the bigger picture, as they say. Definitely. Um, this has been a really enjoyable interview. I want to thank you definitely for, for this. Well, thank, thank you for very much coming on board here. I, I want to have different people and, and different age groups and different experiences on it because it, as you listen to the interview uh, uh, in the catalog now that I'll be able to create, you, you're going to hear not the same thing over again, but you're going to hear some similarities with people. And when people, and I've had already a writer who listens to them all, and, and one of the first things she remarked is like, why are people so hung up with these stupid prejudices when you can listen to this show and you can hear all these different people from different walks of life, doesn't matter if they're writers or not, and, and, and realize not only how different people are, but also how many things that they are attacking with at the same time, whether it be depression or whether they be uh, juggling a, a complicated life or, or whether they be... I had one lady that uh, lived a straight life the entire life, and then one day I realized she was gay and changed her entire life in two years. Wow. Yeah, and, and, and how all the impacts that that did. So you find so many similarities to things that it makes no sense the fear and the prejudice that people have. You, you have to wonder if they just use those things as excuses because they don't want to tackle their own problems, so they make you to be an enemy. Because if you hear people... And you're hearing people honestly explain their writing, their life, their culture, sometimes even. You're hearing a lot of the same similarities, a lot of the same commonalities that you would expect to hear from people who often have some of the same experiences. They just live someplace differently. They they look differently or they, they come from someplace that's differently. But in the end, they share greatly uh, more things than, than they don't. And that's some of the, the unusual things that comes out of the interviews. If you listen to them you know, collectively, is you're like, wow. People are a lot more the same than you realize. Right. There are more, more things, more elements that are universal than not. Yeah, it's just, I knew that from my own experience. I've traveled around the world a great deal. So, uh, but uh, a lot of people didn't who haven't traveled and sometimes are not understanding of that or, or very parochial or, or provincial. You know, when they hear something like that, it, it, it hits home more that it's not just some phrase that someone's telling you to make you feel good about things it happens to be the truth mm -hmm. and uh as an educator I, I teach teenagers i teach high school so i come across quite a bit of uh misunderstand cultural misunderstandings or uh sexual orientation misunderstandings and uh these teenagers it's quite a mix you have those that are still maturing uh i can give some opinions that are quite thought out. And then you have some that um, are quite insightful actually, and uh, can change people's mind within their surroundings. So they change some of their peers' minds right there, right in front of me. And it's amazing to see that uh, we have that type of power also to help others um, not only come to terms with, with the world and the way that culture is, but just, um, be more accepting of it. Sometimes people are, are more accepting of things that they wouldn't have is because they've been taught something different 
or they just don't mm. have enough of experience, so they're, they're basing things on fear. But oftentimes when they see something up front, it, it, it dispels all their all their fears. I, I had an example of a, a couple of years back. Um, my kids play soccer, and uh, the, um, the the league uh, introduced a player who was gay, a, a younger mm-hmm. a younger kid, but the person was already out as being gay. The parents are freaking out. Oh my God, what does this mean? My kids are coming up to me, Daddy. What does this mean? And I'm like, well, this is what it means, okay? Uh, it means the same thing as the kid that came on last week that was straight. They're either going to be a good player or they're going to suck. It's just that simple. Nobody really cares, especially when the person turns out to be good. The kid goes out there, plays very well. Two weeks later, what do you feel about the gay kid? The parents who sounded bigger two weeks ago were like, I think we're going to win this championship now. <laughs> Great. That's wonderful. So uh, everything everything went away quickly because you had somebody that played well, uh, somehow nobody else on the gate, the team turned, turned gay because it's not really possible, but some people were thinking that. And, and, and that was the end of the story. Uh, that simple sometimes. So just with the introduction of it and, and keeping the drama down and letting the person play and do what they're supposed to do, become an instant team member, everybody's happy, no one's thinking about them gay anymore because they just realized it, it doesn't matter. That reminds me of... Uh what you were mentioning about the military. And I heard somewhere that, you know, when, if you're on the battlefield, the person next to you, uh, and the person next to you is saving your life. It's not going to matter what sexual orientation they are. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it doesn't. I, I have yet to see any scientific evidence that suggests that, <laughs> that the bullet that flies at you turns the other way when it goes near a gay person. Cause if that's the case, maybe I need to become gay. Cause I, I have a great way to stay alive then. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so it, it's just so silly that if we break down some of the dumb ideas that people have about prejudice or even racism, if you just can examine it for a moment and even put it up to the person's face that's saying these things, mm-hmm. sometimes they walk away going, you know, that really, does, that really doesn't make any sense what the hell I just said. Sometimes that's what you have to do. Just like, do you realize how stupid this is, how unscientific how how even irreligious what you're saying is it makes no makes no sense at all. You honestly think that if there's a creator upstairs that he's really going to care about the food you eat or, or the color of your skin. I, I don't right. I don't think that's going to be any kind of measurement, especially if you die and you no longer have any of these corporeal bodies in you. So what are you doing? Are you really going up to heaven and you're still black? Uh, no. Are you still eating the Big Mac? No, you're not. You're not even eating anymore. So these are so dumb, <laughs> these ideas that people have, that if you can just help them with a mirror and a little bit of humor, you'd be surprised at how many times you could dispel stuff because it's like, you know, I really haven't thought about that. So I said, well, that's your problem. You haven't given it any real thought. You just repeated some crazy thing that somebody else said 20 years ago. But it doesn't hold water. And when you find out it doesn't hold water, you start realizing that you've you've held back yourself from the relationship with others or, or maybe even to having a fuller experience in life because now you're disconnecting yourself from lots of people that you could have had some real joy and some real blessing with because you thought they were the enemy, not realizing that, you know, for a short period of time, the enemy was in the mirror. And right now, this is what we need right now. I feel like in our in our with where our society is right now, these types of talks um, are what we need right now. 
And this is exactly what you just said. We we are holding a mirror up and and that with you know combined with that humor, I think, and that good naturedness uh, helps bring that awareness. And, and you mentioned humor, and I uh, just thought of this comedian. For any of your listeners that um, relate more to comedy or humor than than some of the darker things we talked about, there is a great comedian named. Uh, Gary Goldman, uh, he did a stand-up called The Great Depression. I believe it's on HBO, and um, it's fantastic. He actually delves into depression and and all of the various treatments that he's gone through because um, he has treatment-resistant depression, and so he's tried everything from uh, uh, it was elderly. I'm sorry, before it was termed electroshock therapy and now it's called something else yeah but he talks about yeah and now he talks he talks about that and among other types of you know, all the medications and the talk therapy and all the things that he tried but was uh treatment resistant to so if any of your listeners are are into comedy um that's a great one that's gary goldman the great depression thank you very much for that and 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 alex i really do appreciate you having me on the show hopefully uh and you have some other projects coming out next year, you can come on back and we can talk some further and, and, and talk uh, you know, more about art and, and, and how it is beneficial in people's lives and how often we, we forget uh, that our own conduct out there in the world, whether it's good or bad, you know, has an impact not only on our psychological well-being, but even on our art. So it, it, we have to keep in mind that sometimes the world isn't bad because there are bad actors out there. Sometimes it's bad because there are good people that they don't want to take a foot forward or they don't want to drop some, some stupid notion that hurts other people. A lot of times the world is bad is because good people are not good enough. They don't want to stand up and do what's necessary. You know, they just want to say, well, you know, I didn't beat my wife today, um, so I'm a good guy and I don't know why she's divorcing me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or, or, um, you know, um, I, I'm good with the community. I recycle and I haven't stabbed anybody today. You know, but it, it requires more than just a, a, a bunch of platitudes. You, you have to do something that's going to be uh, not only constructive, but we got to do something that, that actually makes a difference. That's how the world gets better. It doesn't get better just because you decided to not murder somebody today or you decided to, you know, to embrace a, a politics that's not dictatorial. Big deal. I mean, that still doesn't do any, any, any good for anybody. It, it's just words. And I always felt that writing, as much as it words, it has to have some action to it as well. Otherwise, we don't really become the writers we should become. We, we just become, you know, cool typers. You know, and we don't need any more of that. <laughs> right. Um. Thank you very much for having me on Strength. Thanks for Strength to Be Human podcast, and uh, and thanks for everything you do, Mark. It, it's a lot, and uh, and it doesn't go unnoticed. So thank you well, I, for giving us these opportunities. Well, I can't do this without folks like you out there and, and, and trying to do your part. So I'm I'm very impressed with what you have been doing, and I'm and I'm proud to have you on the show. I I would hope that as you spread this around, we'll have some more folks that. Not only want to listen to the show, but maybe they might want to join us as well, because I'm always open to, to talk to people that are trying to do something out there with their writing. And it doesn't matter what it is they're trying to do. As long as it's something that's beneficial, I'm, I'm happy to hear and talk. 
Most definitely. And uh, I'll definitely um, refer some, some writers to you. Well, I appreciate it. The big state in Texas, I could probably do 10 years on it and not give everybody. But I'm still <laughs> I'm right. still happy to have them. But don't doesn't mean I don't care about you people from Rhode Island, okay? Come on on board. I need I need a Rhode Islander over here. <laughs> All right, Dave. God bless you, Alex, and, and, and thank you very much for being on there. You have a, a great remainder of the day. Uh, folks, this is Strength to Be Human. We had another wonderful interview uh uh, example here of, of a younger writer out there doing something that's that's useful and informative and, and, and instructive to us all. Alexander P. Garza. God bless and thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by purchasing an ebook at Soma Publishing. www.somapublishing.com.